Praise the Lord. Um, Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke and the 14th chapter. And as you're turning there, I want to testify. We praise the Lord when provision is given because we know that he's the one who provides. Amen? Amen. And I said this, and I I mean this, um, while we want to give thanks when he has provided, our gratitude should not diminish based upon how it looks like provision is coming. Now, I know because Chris has started this business and Austin and I, for the last few weeks, we've been sitting around and uh, waiting for jobs to start. And I want to testify that God is still faithful when we're sitting around and waiting for jobs to start. He's still faithful if those jobs don't start. He's still worthy of praise even when I am concerned and worried about my circumstances. And so while we want to testify when things go good because we do know the Lord is working those good things, the same good God is at work in my life Right now, even though I just got another week of waiting in front of me. How many like the waiting room? I don't. (laughs) But God is so faithful, amen? Why don't you look at your spouse, if they're sitting next to you, somebody said, just tell them God's faithful. I think that's important that we are testifying of that faithfulness daily. I'm going to wake up tomorrow with praise on my lips, amen? Luke chapter 14. I am going to share something that I have read a lot of times, but have never thought about. And I was reading in the book of Acts, as I've been doing quite a bit in the last year, and the Lord opened something to me that I had not really thought of. And I want to start here in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. This is Jesus speaking. If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters, and yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I am so encouraged about what God has given pastor to speak. Today, I know we have been talking about some things, but the practical, what, what was the practical action of Jesus's ministry? What does his church look like then? What is it supposed to look like now? Well, I want to talk to you t- tonight about the sin of nepotism. Everybody know what nepotism is? It means to favor someone because they are your family. Traditionally, it's thought of in the, in the sense of a job. So, um, you know, you're, you run a big corporation and you, you move your son up there or your daughter up there to give them preference because they are your family. And I, I saw something that, that um, God is just ministering into my heart and something I'm thinking about a lot. And so I want to ask the Lord that you would be with us tonight. God, help me to deliver what you've put in my heart. God, help me to give some practical knowledge to what this looks like to follow you. What does it look like to be your disciples? Because I believe that you have left some stuff for us that sometimes we just miss completely. 
And so we're revisiting all of this. I didn't know what dad was preaching today, God, but you lined this up. And so I just pray that you would speak to our hearts and everybody who will receive from the Lord tonight, say amen. amen. I think there's some practical things that God still is ironing out in us. Jesus purposely stated great truths in their most paradoxical form in order to make clear his meaning. Jesus didn't beat around the bush because behind the bush is where we get lost in the weeds. How many are thankful Jesus didn't beat around the bush? He directly answered. He directly spoke. Yes, he gave it in parables. So that hearing they would not hear and seeing they would not see because they did not desire him. But when you really want to know, Jesus is going to tell you plainly some things. How many tonight would say, I want to be a disciple of the Lord? That's everybody here. I know that's everybody here. So then, are the words that we just read in Luke, which are also found in other Gospels, are the words that Jesus said true? I think it's something we have to ask ourselves. If I want to be his disciple, because he said, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. So then... There is some qualification to being his disciple. And I think we need to, we, we need to look at it. I love this line. I, my grandma, my dad's mom passed away when I was nine. And so I did not get to know her well. I don't remember much of her. But my dad said one of her favorite lines, you know, whether she said it exactly this way or not, but I use it a lot, is plain talk is easily understood. It's in the beating around the bush that we get confused. It's in the nuance and it's in the you know, hyperbole because we don't want to offend people. So I don't intend to offend anybody here tonight, but I want you to get your seatbelt buckled and I want you to get your toes out and don't worry about getting stomped. I'm going to stay up here and just trust that God's going to speak to you what you need to hear. Amen. So let's set up how Jesus arrives at this statement. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but if you skip up to, I think it's about... Verse 16, yes, verse 16. He tells of a certain man who is preparing a great feast. A, a giant dinner. And it's going to be the best of the best. He's going he's to make the best he has. Uh, Tri-tip, potato salad, you know, whatever is the best. This is, this is what he's saying. He said, I want, you, I want all of my friends, I want you all to come. I'm preparing it and the time is going to be this time and you're all going to, you're all going to show up. And uh, he sends his servants out at the time that the dinner is ready. And he says, I want you to come to the dinner. But those who he, isn't, who he has invited are encumbered with things and give reasons as to why they will not attend. In fact, the scripture says that they all, with one consent, begin to make excuses. Is that, anybody find that thought a little strange? All of them unanimously said, we're going to make excuse. Maybe it's because they don't want to go to the dinner. That's really what's being said here. The excuse is, is unanimous. It's all with one consent. Hey, listen, we're going to make up some excuses because we do not plan to attend this. This is a parable the Lord is giving. Uh, it's, it's crazy to me that they would all do that together. To miss the greatest dinner that they're ever going to go to. 
Um, Chris and Sandy and Carrie and I went to Molly's, which is supposed to be the greatest dinner around here, and I will contest that fact. I do not believe it. It is probably the most expensive dinner around here, but I would not say it's the best, but way better than that. And they're finding reason not to attend. It's hard to comprehend, but this is the very intention of our Lord telling this parable. He is trying to point out just how unnatural it would be to refuse this summoning of the man who has prepared the feast. He's trying to make this point. This is crazy. You don't even have to bring a side salad. All you have to do is show up and eat the best food you've ever been presented. And with one consent, they begin to make excuses. The first man says, I have bought a piece of ground and I need to go see it. Or, as one translation might read, I have bought a farm and I must go to it. Now, I think Dad has mentioned this before, but who buys a farm without seeing it? That, that's not even a logical excuse. It's a ridiculous answer to give to this situation, and it is very clear by his answer that he has no intention of going to this. And whatever excuse is available, he's going to use. And since this deal was done already, he says, I've already bought the property. Since the deal was already done, there's no need for him to go see it. This is clearly just an excuse. Pretty crazy. The second says... I bought five pair of oxen, and I'm going to see if they're any good. I'm going to ask the same question for the five pair of oxen. Who buys five pair of oxen without knowing if they're any good? No one. These pair, this states by the fact that it calls them a pair or a set, means they have already been plowing together. That's why they're being purchased together. Do you know that you get those, those two? They're used to working together. They pull together. And you don't just change those out. Those two go in pairs. That's why you buy the pair. So the fact that he's buying pairs means they've already been tested. It's a similar excuse. It's a ridiculous excuse. The third, he makes no apologies. He simply says, I married a wife and I will not be there. And all of us men can understand that. We don't even need to go any further. <laughs> I am encumbered. <laughs> she could not find what she was going to wear. We're not attending. We're just not going to be there. Sorry. Um, what is clear is that these men are judging inclinations as necessities. They are taking things. What is an inclination? It's a feeling of liking or wanting to do something or the act or action of bending or tilting. So they are judging inclinations, what they feel impressed to do as need in their life, business, 
work, investments, opportunities, families. These men see these things as more pressing than the matter of joining the dinner. And this is exactly what the Lord, in giving this parable, is trying to drive home. Do we, hearing this message tonight, make some ridiculous excuse as to why this does not apply to us? God's bidding you to eat tonight. He's bidding you to take of his word, as Jin just testified, because it encourages, it enriches, it builds us. He's bidding you to eat. What excuse do you give and say, you know what? I'm not coming to dinner tonight. I don't like Brahms. Some of you said, amen. I heard it. I pray that God does not curse you. Our inclinations are based on how we feel. They are rooted in emotion. I said this morning that David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. The soul being the the root of our character, what we are, the emotions. It drives how we live. But the problem is when we live by emotion, it will drive us away from the feast of God. And so we have to tell our emotions what they're going to do. So this is the commandment, bless the Lord, oh my soul. David's not talking to you, he's talking to himself. I know you've got a lot of things that you're to be invested in. I know that you've got a lot of things that draw your attention, that are important to you, that seem to be um, significant, that you enjoy and take pleasure in. But soul, you're going to have to step back from what you want to do. And now I'm going to take my emotions and I'm going to invest them where God says to invest them. But inclinations, those are being moved by our emotions. We're allowing our emotions to determine our actions. Emotional decision-making will always trump commitment. You all need to hear that tonight. Emotional decision-making will always trump commitment. Jesus is revealing a truth to us that you need to hear. If you honor commitment... Based upon how you feel about something, you will never remain committed. If you honor your commitment, let's just give a a simple uh, uh, analogy. If you honor your commitment based uh, uh, to your spouse, based upon how you feel, you will always wind up in divorce. Because there's always going to be a reason to say, you know what? That's it. I'm done. Commitment cannot be based upon how we feel. Commitment is based upon the commitment. It's the vow that we make. That's why we make vows that say for better or for. Because worse is coming. Health, but also sickness. Rich, amen, and poor. Because it's coming. And commitment is not based upon my circumstances. It's not based upon my inclinations. And it cannot be based upon my emotions. If it is, then I will walk away. You say, well, Pastor Rodney, I just think that's too harsh. I don't know. That might be just a little bit too straight. This is Jesus' words, not mine. 
I didn't make this up. He's driving to a very specific point. I was reading a commentary on this passage, and this stood out to me from McLaren. He says, if you are only juggling and deceiving yourself with inclinations that pose as necessities, the sooner the veil is ripped off, the better. And you understand whereabouts you are and what is your true position in reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here tonight and you're allowing your circumstances to adjust your commitment to God, then it's better for you that I rip the scab off right now and that you come into account of how you're allowing your circumstances to dictate your relationship with God right now than that we wait and talk about it some other time. We need to come to grips with it. Let me say it this way. As it relates to the body of Christ and the gathering with the saints and the fellowship and koinonia, which we call church. I, I told dad and I were talking with a couple of brothers after church today. I believe this. Not only is church essential for your, for your growth and your development, but the fellowship of the body is equally essential. It's not just, hey, pastor, I'm going to come, I'm going to hear what you say, and I'm going to head out the back door. It is that connection and communion with the body that he is trying to develop in you. It's vital for your life. The greatest invitation we are ever offered What excuse do we present his servants when they come and offer? Is it the oxen? Is it the wife? The investments, the work, the business, the children? What excuses is it that we believe deem us exempt from needing to come to the dinner? If you're making decisions about being in church based upon whether your kid has a sniffle or a fever... The devil will be glad to accommodate you every week with a sniffle or a fever. I'm going to tell you the truth. This isn't about judgment. This is about the commitment. So I don't want to get anybody sick. Don't worry about that. We've got the healer in the house. Jake was just telling me today how perfectly it ties that the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, which was 300-something strong, is singing in Texas, he saw a video, and there's 20 of them. And he's like, what's going on? COVID stopped them from gathering. They've got 20 left out of 300 in the choir. I don't care if there's a plague of leprosy because one of you ate an armadillo. We need to gather with the body. And I cannot allow my commitment and my fellowship to be determined by my inclinations. Rip the scab off. Just get it off. Why? Because you want to... No, no, no. This is the words of the Lord, not mine. If we are barfing, or if you cannot help but run to the toilet every time you get up, yes, obviously, we, you, know, you, you can't be in the house. That's not the point. The point is that the idea that we determine our commitment to the Lord, our commitment to the body based upon our circumstances. 
And I thank God for this. I was just telling dad this week, we grew up in my childhood. I did not have the teaching of my father, which I have now, because he wasn't pastoring. And Heather and I grew up in a mess. I don't know very many people that grew up in that or even considering going to church. But I thought about the heritage that was left to me in the middle of a really bad situation, not a good circumstance with a lot of nutty people who were perverts and a lot of other things. And we went, I can't count. I could count on one hand the number of times I missed church growing up. And that included baseball nights, which were often. And that included revivals that would happen two to three weeks at a time, every night, seven o'clock, and dad's got to get up and go to work first thing in the morning, and then Brother Colbert's preaching two and a half hours. And we're not getting out of there till midnight. And I'm in church. And it's been birthed into me. Now, was what was being taught there any good? No, it wasn't, frankly. I don't even believe it. But thank God the heritage that was handed down to me was a teaching by my parents to be committed to the things of God over the things of myself. And I am grateful for that heritage. I am not trying to berate people. Y'all are faithful. I'm not trying to berate you or say, you, you gotta come and you're, you're a bunch of losers. That's not the point. Again, this is the words of the Lord. What is he trying to get at? If we are waiting to determine whether we are going to the house of God by whether we are tired or, or whether we are feel good, then we will never be more tired than Wednesdays and Sundays. I can say that. I'm never more tired than Sunday afternoon. That's why God made naps. But I, I'm not determining it based on that. It doesn't, it doesn't even weigh in to the equation as to what my commitment to being in the body and fellowshipping with his people is. It doesn't even weigh in. So I don't care what decisions you make, not trying to judge you. I'm trying to reveal what Jesus was explaining to this crowd. This is how he felt about it. This is what his perspective was on it. But now we get to the sin of earthly affection for those that we love. This is difficult. I think this is more far-reaching than what sometimes we are even aware of or willing to admit. I think for many of us, the biggest obstacle we face is the love for our family that we have been born into and that we have birthed. We love our families dearly. Everybody say amen. We would give ourselves for our family. Everybody say amen. For wives, for husbands, for children, for our parents. We, we believe in family around here. So this message, it flies in the face of everything we believe. Well, in some sense, it does. The love for these people grips our hearts in such a way that it literally affects how we see God and what we believe to be true, the decisions we make concerning the kingdom. The last man gives the reason that is likely the most powerful distraction to us to follow Jesus. He says, I married a wife. What happens 
if our families dissent. Well, I can tell you exactly what happened in the garden. We don't need to look very far with Eve to see that she was deceived. And Adam said, if Eve's going, so am I. Adam's sin, and dad just said this a couple weeks ago, and I have said it before, but Adam's sin was not one of being deceived. Adam's sin was completely willful transgression against what God said because of his wife. That's a powerful thought. My dad has said it often, and I like it. It's good. He says that if the devil comes knocking on the door and says, I'm taking you or Kay, he's going to say, you're going to have to take her because I'm not going. We laugh at that. But Jesus' words that we just read are, if you do not hate your husband, your wife, your children, your sister, your brother, you cannot be my disciple. Well, I will if they do. As long as they're going along for the ride, then I'm going to go along for the ride too. Boy, I can serve the Lord and he can take everything from me as long as I have my children. Jesus said, no, that's not going to work. Just simply, it's not going to work. He doesn't want to take your children. That's not my point. He doesn't want to take your spouse. He wants your spouse to be saved if they're not, which everybody here is, I believe. Don't argue. But... Point being, Jesus is not, he's not trying to say, I'm taking them from you. He is saying that if you do not place precedence on knowing him above everything else, you cannot be his disciple. That's all there is to it. There's no leeway. There's no wiggle room. It doesn't mean anything but what it means. Unless we hate. It seems too strong of a statement. Unless we hate. Certainly, this is not what Jesus means. We're told to love. Unless you hate. It can't mean that. The spouse that God gave me, my sister, my brother, my children, he cannot mean that I should hate. It has been said that this means to love less. I've heard that. Maybe I've said that, but I don't see that. It doesn't mean to put whatever that person is, children, spouse, brother, sister, your own life. It doesn't mean to weigh it on the scale and say, well, I got Jesus here and, and uh, you know, my family, whoever here. And so I'm going to put a little bit more love And just make sure I love the Lord a little bit more than I love them. That's not what this word means. It is showing an opposition. And it is saying, in comparison to loving him, they do not matter. See, that's a different different thing than what we've been told. What we've been told is that we can love the Lord and just love him a little bit more. That's all. We just got to love, just got to weigh that scale. Just a 51% for the Lord, 49 for everything else. But that's not at all what he's saying. In comparison to me, you cannot love them 
at all. That's what Jesus is saying. Unless you hate them in comparison to me. What that means is I have captured every bit of your attention. I have captured every bit of your affection. Your heart is 100% mine. And whatever I say to do, you are going to do regardless of how it affects them. This is how Abraham takes his only son, his beloved son, and walks up to a mountain and places him on an altar. He does not hate that child, but in comparison to God. You following me? He loves him more than you can even imagine. But in comparison to loving God, he says this isn't even a question. I'm going to do exactly what you say to do, Lord. That's a really tough thing. I made you say something to your neighbor. Well, you can say something else to him. That's a little tough. Go ahead, tell him. That's a little tough. It is. I didn't say it. He did Not a little more. Complete opposition. How they feel, how you feel about them, what they think, how this decision will affect them. These things you must hate. They cannot even factor into the equation. They cannot even put weight upon the scale. They cannot leverage you in any sense. One of the biggest issues that we've got going on and they accuse... You know, one of the things I've figured out now, I don't, I don't want to be super political, but I will just say to the left... One of the things that the left does is the left accuses you of what they're doing. And so they accuse Donald Trump for years of being leveraged by the Ukraine. And we just sent hundreds of billions of dollars to the Ukraine. Because somebody is leveraged by the Ukraine, but it wasn't Donald Trump. Point being... We cannot be leveraged by our children. God will not be leveraged. He will not allow anything to stand in between you and him. The point isn't even that he's going to remove you. The point is you're going to remove yourself when it comes down to it. When the rubber hits the road, if Jesus isn't number one and only and there's nothing else on the scale, then you will walk. You will make decisions based upon your feelings. You will make decisions based upon how your, how your children feel. And things that God says, do not let your children do, you will let them do because everybody else is doing it and you don't want to hurt their feelings. And you bring them to church and hope that pastor can fix them. Why? Because you love them less than God, but you, you still got them on the scale. It's tough. It's hard to make hard stances because we think that by stating certain things, we can't do that. Because if I say this, then that means people are going to say, I just hate everybody. You know, let's just end it. You're right. I do. I hate everybody in comparison with Jesus. Let's get it over with. Let's stop worrying about what people are going to think about what we're saying. Let's stop worrying about what other churches are going to... I'm only trying to please him. I don't care what you think in comparison with him. Now, in comparison with me, I still got to live with my wife and my children. I need to conduct myself right. I, I need to have good relationship with them. But when the Lord speaks, y'all need to shut up. I don't care what you have to say. That's what the Lord's saying. That's why you can't be unequally yoked. 
You, you can't be yoked with someone who's pulling you this way and the Lord's speaking. The Lord's saying, hey, come over here. Well, I'm tied down with somebody who doesn't want to go over there, Lord. Well, you're going to have to get unyoked. I'm tied down to a job. I'm tied down to a child. I'm tied down to a spouse. I'm tied down to a friend. I'm tied down to a sibling. No, no, no. It's not going to work. Like I said, I just, we might as well get it out in the open right now. That way you can deal with it. Let God begin to work in your heart. Ah, oh, pastor, I think you're taking that the wrong way. Well, Jesus says it even more powerfully. You don't have to turn there, but if you look in the book of Matthew, in the 10th chapter, he's going to make this statement, and it's gonna, he's going to beat even less around the bush. I believe it's 10.34. Now, we don't need to parse what Jesus is saying here. We don't need to take... It is context. I'm going to give you context. We're going to read this passage. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Do you feel like Jesus was mincing any words there? Am I, am I hellfire and brimstone too much here? So I, I don't think you could even question. Jesus ends the debate. Let me tell you something. I did not come to give you your best life now. That's literally what he just said. I didn't come to bring peace. I came with a sword and I'm going to divide the household if you all don't follow me. Should we all follow Jesus? Yes. Do I pray that my children follow the Lord with me? Absolutely. Are they on that trajectory right now? I believe so. But should they walk away? Then what? Oh Lord, I, I can't do this. I've got to be united. I've got to make this work. No, no, no. No, Jesus has got an answer. I didn't come to bring peace. Didn't come to bring you peace. I need peace about this. My children are lost. I need peace about this. My spouse is lost. I need peace about this. My brother, my sister, they're lost. No, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Don't lament what God is separating from you. Don't lament it. Yes, pray for lost children. Yes, pray for lost loved ones. Weston was sleeping, but he's awake. He can remember Wednesday night. We pray for those. And yes, we believe that God is going to reach them, call him by his, by his grace. We want him to do that. But I cannot let that affect me in my pursuing the Lord. It cannot be a factor. But I love my family, as you should. Your love for them just can't even 
place the slightest weight on the scale. I want to quickly show you just how dangerous this can be. Even really good men and women can get caught up in the trap of nepotism. I've seen this before many times, but I had not seen it in this way. Now, in Acts chapter 13, you, I'm not going to read scripture there, but you're going to find Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas' name means son of consolation. Barnabas' name would basically kind of be translated into he's a people person. He's about consoling. He's about making people feel good. His name would say that he is likely going to err on the side of trying to love people into the kingdom. That's what his name says. Son of consolation. Paul, zeal. Zeal, zeal, zeal. To the nth degree. Man, he is locked and loaded, ready for fire. We see Paul and Barnabas ministering the gospel to the Gentiles. Barnabas has a nephew, and his name is John Mark. They are on the Isle of Paphos. And Elymas, the sorcerer, tries to withstand Paul in order to keep Sergius, the Gentile, from hearing the gospel. And we don't know exactly what the situation is. But whether it is the result of Paul's harsh rebuke of Elymas or of his preaching of the gospel to the uncircumcised Sergius, I believe it's the preaching of the gospel to the Gentile who is uncircumcised, and I think it bears out in Scripture. Ultimately, John Mark departs. The word used here does not simply imply that he just decided it was time to go home. Now, this is conjecture, but I believe you can see the picture that is pretty clear in the scripture. It's not just simply that Mark said, you know, I'm tired. We've been on the mission field a little bit. I think I'm just going to go home and rest. But what this word appears to say is that he walked away from the faith, that he backslid. Did he backslide? Because he did not agree with the message that was being proclaimed to the Gentiles and the fact that these people had not come up to the overachieving status it's quite possible. Now, two or three years later, in Antioch, we find there is a disruption concerning whether the Gentiles should be circumcised. This is a couple of years down the road. Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem in defense 
of the gospel of grace. To settle the issue with the apostles. There was this contention and a love that pastor was already there, so it's just beautiful. There was this contention that the grace of God calling you into salvation and you surrendering your life to Christ was not enough. And that the result of that meant that you now as a man needed to also be circumcised exactly the same as the rest of the Jews who had come into belief in Christ. But they weren't all simply trusting in the grace of God. There was still belief to the point that Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face in a crowd of people to correct the hypocrisy that was in Peter because Peter has now begun to preach the gospel of grace, but he still believes in some overachieving works accompanying it. This is the situation. I know you've probably not heard a message about this ever. It's okay. We're almost done. We're driving to a point. So Paul and Barnabas both go to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles and to say, listen, we've got to be on the same page. The gospel that we're preaching to the Gentiles has to be the same gospel that's being preached to the Jews. There is no preference with God whether you're born Jew or Gentile or Roman, Italian. It doesn't matter what you're born and we need to all be on the same page. And grace prevails. There is a correction made. They send out Paul and Barnabas back to the mission field and say, listen, you guys just go preach this and, and man, this is going to be great. And if you're going to baptize, make sure you're baptizing in Jesus' name. I mean, it's not essential for salvation, but if you're going to do it, you better do it right. Baptize in Jesus' name. They send them back out and we find Paul and Barnabas in Antioch again where the whole thing started. And this is still now where we, we got some question coming in. Paul and Barnabas, the dynamic duo, the ones who are sent back to the mission field. God is doing great things. But I want you to look at Acts chapter 15 and this I have not paid attention to. And I was reading it this week as the Lord was laying this on my heart and it struck me differently. Verse 35. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And some days after, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go again to visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord. Let's make round, round two. Let's make a round trip and let's go see all the churches we've started and make sure that they are still prevailing in the grace of God and they're still being victorious. And we want to you know, make sure people are hearing about Jesus to see how they do. And Barnabas was determined to take with them his nephew, John. 
whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them, from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. Now look at verse 39. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and went home. You think nepotism doesn't affect good men? We never hear from Barnabas again. That kind of stagger you a little bit, huh? I'm not saying Barnabas departed from the faith. We know that Mark was restored. And at some point, Paul says, hey, go ahead and send Mark to me. He'll be some service now. I don't know the case of Barnabas, but I can clearly see. We're not talking about, hey, man, Paul, it's been good. And Paul says, yeah, Barnabas, I know it, it has been good. Now, We'll see you later on, brother. Okay, and we'll see you get in the car and let's drive. No, no, no. Heated. Sharp. They are arguing. They are screaming back and forth. And Paul says, I cannot go preach this gospel with somebody who's got an issue with the grace of God, and I'm trying to preach about the grace of God, and you just went with me to Antioch and defended the grace of God, but you're more concerned with Mark than you are with the gospel. And Barnabas loads up in a ship and goes back to Cyprus, which is where he lives, and he is never heard from again. They were commissioned by God to go do the work of the Lord, to continue to establish the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Barnabas walks away from his commission based upon nepotism, based upon how he felt about his nephew more than how he felt about the gospel and more than how he felt about Paul. I'm not trying to disparage Barnabas' character because I don't know the man. But I am saying this is here in the scripture. Why would the Lord, why would Luke be inspired to include this in the scripture if it did not matter? It does matter. I, wanna, I just want to have you see this. Saying, well, Pastor Rodney, you're, I don't know, maybe you're making some of that up. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 2. You can just write it down and look at it later if you want to. In verse 11 but when Peter was come to Antioch, remember where were they at? Antioch. Paul, Barnabas, Mark, everybody's in Antioch. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And... Other Jews disassembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was also carried away with their dissimulation. Barnabas allowed his relationship with Paul 
and with the work of the Lord to be dissolved by how he felt about Mark. It's clear. And I give this warning tonight. Is there restoration? Of course. Is there a way back? Of course. But if we're going to do the work of the Lord that I believe God wants us to do in this place, and we're going to say, how did Jesus do do church? What was he intending for his kingdom to function like? And, And as we begin to dive into this, we have to make some decisions about how we're going to proceed. And we got to make them now. We cannot let inclinations weigh in. We cannot let how we feel about mother, father, sister, brother, husband, wife, children, or even my own emotions. Can't let them weigh in. I can't let how my job feels. I can't let how worried I am about the economy. I can't let any of this weigh in if I'm going to answer what God wants to do in my life. To say, well, okay, but Pastor Rodney, I'm not Barnabas. I'm not, I'm not called to the mission field. No, no, this isn't about that. If Barnabas, who was a great man and clearly believed the gospel of grace, can be drawn away to disassemble, how about you? How about me? Can Satan leverage me enough to get me outside of where God wants me because of of circumstance, because of family, because of situation? Oh, certainly he can. And so my reason for speaking this tonight is to challenge you. I can't lay hands on you and make this part of your life. I cannot impart this to you. Dad cannot impart this to you. But for every one of us, we need to make a commitment to the Lord tonight about how we are going to proceed in his kingdom, where he wants me as an individual to go and where he wants us as a corporate body to go. And I've got to make a commitment that says, regardless of how this looks or feels to anybody around me, I'm not going to be carried away from what God's trying to do in my life. I simply wanted to show you how easy it would be for a good man to be drawn away, even with good intentions. He just loved people. Son of consolation. And I want to tell you that loving people will drive you away from loving God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, and all of your strength. And then the second commandment is like unto the first. The result of that first commandment, loving Jesus with everything, is then I will love my neighbor as myself. Hate in comparison with him. God bless you tonight. Pastor, would you close us?